0: Is Jesus, in other words, the only means by which somebody can get to heaven? Her answer was quick and simple. No. No. Almost as if to say, of course not. Now, just if you think that's a bad answer, she goes on to explain herself and says this. God's not a Christian. God's not a Christian. That's what she said. I mean, we are. For me, the Christian tradition is the way to understand God. And my relationship with the world and other humans. And it's for me the best way to understand the world. But I'm not about to say what God can and cannot do in other ways And with other spiritual experiences. Who am I to say Jesus is the only way? She then went on to comment when asked about the deadly shooting in Las Vegas. She went on to then describe how she had often struggled even with believing in God in the first place. And when asked about how to reconcile the nature of God with what happened in Las Vegas, here was her only response. God has some explaining to do now you, you may you may hear this and you may think, oh, okay, pastor, I'm sure there's a lot of examples like this. I mean fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. I mean surely that that's probably some you know maybe historic but rather. Small little congregation that largely, you know, has has largely no impact on the culture around them. They, They are a member of the Presbyterian Church USA. For those who may, you know, have any familiarity with the Presbyterian denominational line, that would be the most liberal of them. Nonetheless, this is a group that still claims in their statement of faith. I looked it up. They still claim that God is sovereign. And sovereign over salvation. They also still have a statement of faith that says they believe the Bible, though it doesn't specify it any more than that. Now, again, you may hear of this kind of individual making this kind of comment and assume, all right, that's just, you know, liberal, progressive, small church probably. What difference does it make? Until you hear that Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, Illinois, has over 5,000 people in it. 5,000. people. I, I share an example like this just as further reminder to us that what we are talking about here tonight and what we you know, hope to, to be and become as Tabernacle Baptist Church. When I share with you that we are a minority of the evangelical world, that's not just a pastor bloviating about stuff. And I know you don't think that's a word, but it is. Anyway, I know, you know that, that, that that's just me hyping things up, being dramatic. When in fact, this is definitely the direction that a significant portion, not, not of just the old traditional mainline denominations are moving. You, you see a, a, a degradation. You see a decline among a lot of denominations and churches all across this country. I've shared before that while I am definitely burdened and concerned and saddened by what I see is the moral decay of our culture, I think the far greater threat is the decay that's happening in our churches. That in fact, what do we expect from lost people? What do lost people do? Lost people act lost, right? And it is not possible... For lost people, by doing moral things, to become more moral. Now some of you may need to wrestle with that for the rest of the message. Maybe you've never heard that or thought about that. But lostness is a degenerative disease. There is no cure for it save Jesus Christ. And your only option is to get worse. Lost people cannot do anything about that, their moral decline by trying to be more moral. It does not work. What the culture needs, it's not some kind of political agenda as much as it needs healthy churches. I would dare say part of the strength of our nation at one time would have been a a more abundance, a greater abundance of healthy churches. That I don't think is any longer the case. In fact, getting back to the Presbyterian Church USA, there was a, a survey done in which they were asked a number of questions along the lines of theology and they asked pastors the question, uh, do you agree or disagree that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation? Forty five percent of pastors disagreed with the statement. Disagreed with the statement. So this is a real thing. In other words, churches are in, are in, are in uh, serious trouble, I think, in a lot of ways, because we've not thought clearly about these matters. Or we've allowed the culture to infect us, and when I say us, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily mean here per se. Though, though, we should also be very concerned about church health. That, in fact, the, the, the church—when I say the church—I mean the evangelical world—finds itself in a very dangerous place because there are churches who seem to no longer be anchored by what God's word says makes for a healthy church. Now, so you see it on the one end, on liberalism. Then you see it on the other end. And what I mean by the other end is you see churches that probably come from a good place. In other words, there are people out there, there are pastors out there, there are churches out there that really do, I think, want to see people come to Christ and have their lives changed. But they are so willing to do anything that they either, they either corrupt the message or they shallow out the message And really, church becomes an event, a scene of entertainment, a means by which you try and do whatever the people want you to do for the sake of reaching the masses. And while this one side may have a better motive, I'm afraid the church ends up in the same place. Unhealthy and unfit. And so it's important that we think about this question. What makes for a, a healthy church? I think that is the key question. Above any other question, you may ask about the church. Any other question. Every other question is number two or below. Every other one. What is a healthy church? That's our number one concern. What is a healthy church? Now, as we've, tried, as we've begun to answer this question, we've really done so first by taking out the word healthy. Because before we can know what a healthy church is, it might be helpful to know what a churches and we find ourselves in an odd place where even the language of church what is a church is fair game as we've already talked so we've spent last week and we're going to do it again tonight kind of figuring our way through what are some key texts in scripture that help describe what church is in the first place we started this last week so if you have notes uh, they, they sh- this stuff should show up you know, uh, on the screen. If you have notes, just as a quick reminder, the notes from last week at the very top, I do have a definition there of the church, just to kind of get us going. Church is a group of people who have been saved by the gospel and have committed to one another for the purpose of fulfilling the New Testament expectations for the people of God. Now, I think that's just a basic, simple definition of church. Uh, it identifies church not by its geographical location, It does not identify a church based on its structure. Uh, It doesn't identify a church based on style or method, per se. It identifies it as it should be. But the church, only and ever in the New Testament, is describing a group of people. People. That's all it's ever describing in the New Testament. And in fact, it wasn't until about the third century that you find churches meeting in buildings. They always met in houses. Some of them even met out in the open. So this, this gets us to our fundamental understanding. And then we started last week looking at what are the three major images, symbols, if you will, uh, pictures that the New Testament paints for us that gives us a better understanding of what the church is. Three main uh, images that Scripture uses to help describe the church. And and again, you know, I think this language is is important because it's going to get us to the essence uh, of what a church is. And then next week, uh, we'll be able to dive in to to thinking our way through marks of a healthy church. Uh, Hopefully, you've had an opportunity to start reading on some of those books that many of you have bought. Um, I I think both of them are fantastic. Again, they're just books, and uh, those aren't going to be necessarily the outline I'm going to follow. Uh, though I think those ideas are ideas we will we will discuss uh, in the weeks to come. But hopefully you're gleaning from those and have, have had an opportunity to begin to begin reading uh, what some of those important ideas are. so what are what are these three uh, major images we find in the New Testament? Number one, this is what we looked at last week. The church is a building. The church is a building, so we find this is one of the images where the Bible speaks of, the church being a building that's kind of put together brick by brick, so to speak. Uh, stone upon stone. And, and, and it gives us this picture of God as, as this architect and designer. He and his sovereignty is putting together the church. To speak of the church as a building is not to confuse it with the building. In other words, oddly enough, Tabernacle Baptist Church is not the tabernacle. Though there is imagery here, the Old Testament tabernacle and temple do feature as an important image for this idea when it comes to the church. The church is the tabernacle and the temple of God, not the physical structure. We as the people are described as the building in which God exists. God is, just as he said... Uh, God would make His dwelling in the tabernacle and in the temple the same language is used in the New Testament, that it, specifically to talk about the Holy Spirit, that we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that God is intended for us as the people of God to be a building out of which He can shine His glory, He can manifest Himself to the world, uh, that this, this is to be a structure designed for the glory of God. And what we noted was particularly important to this image, Is the language about Christ. Christ is both cornerstone and constructor. So like Ephesians, a passage we looked at last week, describes Jesus as the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets as the foundation. Christ himself the cornerstone. So the church as a building is built on Christ. But the church is also built by Christ. He himself said, I will build my church. Alright, let's go on to number two. The most identifiable image, I think is the church as a body. The church as a body. Again, you know, I didn't do an actual number count here, uh, but I do think that of all the images that are used to describe the New Testament church, the, the one word that is most often used in connection with it is the church as the body of Christ. The body of Christ. So this is an important image because it really speaks of the church you know, in terms of our relationship with Christ, our dependency upon Christ, to speak of the church as a body uh, gives us a picture of the value of every part, but that every part has to do its part for the whole to work right, and that all of the parts then have to be rightly related to the head, uh, who is Christ himself. So this is really, a, I think, a potent image that should force us to think carefully about church, about our role, about the way in which we all come together, uh, what we should be doing here. So let's take a look at a couple of these. First in Ephesians, chapter 1. Uh, just so we get a running start, we're going to go all the way back to verse 15 of chapter 1, though my focus uh, is going to be on verses 22 and 23. So a- after Paul introduces this letter with you know, verses 3 through 14 uh, you know, being one of those those. Great classic summaries of the gospel, uh, profound and rich, and theologically deep. And all the language that's used here to describe how the Father uh, chose us, and how uh, Christ Himself has saved us, how the Spirit Himself seals us. I mean, it's really, uh, re- really a, a, I mean, almost a poetic uh, statement that He makes here. In fact, verses three through fourteen are all one sentence. In the Greek language. Then, verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness? His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Now, now stop there for just a moment. So Paul first, you know, then launches into a, Something he does normally in his letters. He talks about his prayers for the folks in, in Ephesus. And, and we will glean, by the way, in the weeks to come, much from these prayers. You want to know what a healthy church is? Like, like just from a pure biblical standpoint? Read the prayers of Paul for the churches. Read the prayers of Paul. You want to do a great study? Read how Paul prays for the churches. I would say that's a pretty good, you got pretty good insight here. If you want to know, so what is the New Testament expectation of a healthy church? I would imagine the way Paul prays for the church is a pretty good sign. So he's praying for the church, talking about how he wants them to grow in their knowledge and understanding and their love and their insight to understand then who Christ is. And then that that causes him to shift in those verses, uh, like in verse 20 and 21, where he talks about Christ being raised from the dead, seated in the heavenly places, talking about His dominion and His power. And then to this, then He gives us this image in verse 22. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now again, these these are really deep and profound words that that Paul speaks here. Where where in describing what what God has done for us through the gospel, and then how God has raised Christ up, exalted Him to this place, and how that place of exaltation then has specific application to the church. All things are under His feet, and and then Christ is the head over all things, and in particular, the head of the church. And then that language of verse 20, 23 is interesting because he says, the church which is his body. Now, here's what I find interesting about that. If you can connect this, say, with Romans, you know, where we spend a lot of time talking about how through the gospel we're united with Christ. Christ, we're in him, he is in us. And even thinking about it in the language of the Lord's Supper from this morning. To talk about, you know, his body being broken and then his body being raised. And then as a result of the gospel, we have been crucified and we have been raised. So, so this is really, again, rooting everything about what the church is in the work of Christ. The church is to view itself as the body of Christ. And that we want the fullness of him to fill all. In other words, it's not just that he is the head, but as the head, we want every part To be fully and completely in submission to the headship of Christ. Now church, I I think this is an issue that requires us to have a lot of thought and prayer. and And I hope and pray you do and you should pray for me that I would. Because on paper and on Sunday night, everybody nods their head. Yes, Jesus is the head of the church. As long as somebody else in the church doesn't do something I don't like them to do. And then I like to think of myself as the head of the church. In other words, on paper we say, yes, Christ is the head of the church until I don't get my way. And then, I don't know, I may want to bump him out just a little bit, just for a minute, just for a minute. So I can get my fingers in there and rearrange everything. Get it just the way I like it. Because you know there's a way I like church. And it may not be the way everybody else likes church. You do know that language is foreign to the New Testament. It's foreign even to this image. To think, and this is what we've done. And and let's let's be equal opportunity offenders. Pastors have been just as guilty. Have, Have you all ever known a pastor that had a tendency to maybe lord it over the people? Has that ever happened in churches? Yeah, maybe once or twice. Church has ever taken pastor's ever taken advantage of their position. Yes. Church members. Absolutely. Sure. That this does happen. This requires consistent thought to to remind ourselves that when it you know, when it comes down to it, how have we gotten to this place where the church is largely relegated to being a place that we go to particular churches because, well, that's just kind of how we like church. Now I'm not discounting some of the elements of style and method. That there's a way of doing things that could appeal to some and others. There's a lot of churches. I'm not suggesting there should only be one church in every city. That would be that would be miserable, all right? Because I'd have to be in charge of it anyway. Anyway, that would be miserable. So no one would want that. So I understand there's differences here, but I think we do need to be very careful. It can be easy. For us to slip in to the headship spot. Paul's very clear here. A healthy church. What is the church? The church is properly related to Christ. He is the head. And so everything I should always ask myself should be in relation to that. Christ as being the head. All right, now let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. uh, Just turn a couple of pages back and we, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this this other than to draw our attention to it because uh, you know you the sun, you, you Sunday night folks you know we've got church on Wednesday nights too right okay so um, it's important it's helpful to, to remind your neighbors on Sunday mornings that we do this on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights every, every Sunday night Wednesday night so you know maybe maybe every now and then kind of nudge folks next to you and say, hey, by the way, um, we'll, we'll be back here tonight. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12 some point in the future on Wednesday night, so we're not going to unpack all of it. But this is the premier text of the church is the body. So look with me beginning in verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now, let's, let's just stop there for a minute, because Paul's already made an important statement. He's, he's drawing an analogy here, and he'll flesh it out. So, just as we have one body, he's talking about your physical body now at this point. Just as we have one body, but that body has different parts. Then he, then he makes the statement, so also is Christ. And I bring that out. Notice how intimately then Paul is connecting the, the church to Christ. At this point, he's not even saying the body of Christ. At this point, he's saying, so is Christ. And church, I think you and I need to really appreciate this. The purpose of the church is to be an expression of Christ to the world around us. That, that, that when people see us, they should see Christ. It, it is very much what you would call incarnational. That just as Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, not to say it's to the same degree, but it is similar. Ideally, we should be able to say, when you've seen us, you've seen Christ. So he's so intimately tying this imagery here that he doesn't even say, so also is the body of Christ. He says, so also is Christ. Verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head of the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable. On these we bestow greater honor and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that therefore, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. This, you know, Paul Paul has, obviously he has a, uh, he's got a a snarky pen. I've told you before that, you know, pastors who have a bit of snark, we get it from the New Testament. Alright, I mean, did you... Sometimes when you read Scripture, perhaps it can be hard to see what would have been the humor in it. But Paul is really kind of speaking uh, with, with a sense of... He's being ornery here when he says this. When he says, so, foot. What's the stinky foot going to say to the hand? Well, because I'm not the hand, I don't want to be a part of the body anymore. You know, and so, what, what would we be? What, what if, what if uh, everybody was an, e- was an eye? What if your entire body was an eye? Everything. The whole body was an eye. I mean, this is, this is the ridiculous image he's presenting here. What if the whole body was an eye? Then how are you going to hear anything? What if the whole body was an ear? How are you going to smell anything? Now, he's doing this to make the point. Because as you know, what was going on in Corinth, they liked the really flashy gifts. Showy ones, right? The ones that had everybody talking, that when they would display them in public worship, everybody would go, ooh, ah. Yeah, that's somebody spiritual. That person's important. And Paul Paul is trying to break down all of that, all of that pride, all of that ego, as a way to say, No, that the nature of this thing is that we are we are the body of Christ, and every part of your body is important. Now we don't we don't have to get into all the details. We'll get into it, by the way, where talk where Paul talks about modest and immodest. All right, we'll deal with it when we get there. But he's talking about what you know he's talking about. But let, let me ask you this. Is is it true or false? When you have a problem in one area of your physical body, it can influence other areas of your physical body. Is that true or false? True. How about even something as simple as stubbing your big toe? Have you ever broken a toe? Anybody here broken a... You've got a broken toe right now. Is that what you're saying? All right, well, there you go. So, I mean, you, you, a little toe. Man, that makes a hard life, doesn't it? Is there ever a situation where you need both your foot and your hand to work agreeably together? Do you know how difficult it would be to drive if those two parts don't work in unison? I don't want to get behind you when we go home, All right. All these parts matter. They're all significant. And all of them have the role to play. And the entirety of the body suffers. And you've got to love the imagery of what Paul says when then he speaks of when one member of the body suffers, the body suffers. I mean, if, you know if somebody breaks something, or if you have a particular kind of illness or disease, especially in one location, that it's not like you separate that one part and then just go about your day, it influences everything, everything. So I think this is such an apt illustration, the nature of the church. This, by the way, is why churches often find themselves struggling with dysfunction. Because the parts aren't cooperating. Parts aren't cooperating. And so, this really damages the one-anothering that should be going on in church, right? Loving one another, forgiving one another, serving one another, being kind to one another. You know, The one-anothering that should happen in the church really is connected most intimately to the language of the church as a body. We all have our role, we all have our parts, we all have our skills and talents and abilities. This is why I think one of the scourges on the modern church... I should say this on a Sunday morning, and later in Romans we'll get to it, alright? You're just going to have to be patient. But I think one of the scourges on the modern church is this idea of inactive membership. Inactive membership. Think about that. For parts of your body. Alright? Have you ever had an uncooperative part? Not work the way it's supposed to work? Every day? Do you just say, "Well, you know, I don't want to hurt that part's feelings." Okay, I mean, it can come and go as it pleases. If it if it works, you know, one Sunday out of the month, well, that's great. We're glad they're going somewhere one Sunday out of the month, right? No. Can I tell? Can I? Can we have just a real moment of pastoral honesty here? This is particularly a problem in the Southern Baptist Convention. We love to say, "We got 16 million people." No, we don't. No, we don't. If there are four million Southern Baptists meeting on a church on any given Sunday, I'd be shocked. The FBI can't find some of them. In fact, the FBI should be informed if we find some of them. All right, I'm pretty sure they're on other lists somewhere. Do you know that here at Tabernacle, if every member on the roll showed up, we're breaking the law? Because we don't have space for them all. I mean, we'd have to go to the Family Life Center. There's not room in this building for everyone on the roll. I think there's some level of dishonesty about that. I do. I I I think I think this imagery here says, how can there be an inactive church member? Now, by the way, when I say that, I'm not talking about people who have serious health issues. You you know that that's what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm not talking about those folks who you know shut in, homebound nursing home, those those folks who find themselves, again, dealing with really debilitating physical conditions who, for whatever reason, do the best they can and come when they can. You know I'm not talking about those folks. I'm talking about those folks who wake up on Sunday morning and think, you know what, I want waffles today, and if I make waffles, I'm not going to have time to get to church. They're out there. They may have been here this morning. They just didn't make waffles, so they were here this morning, all right? This happens. This happens. In other words, this this idea that the church is an event, it's something I go to, it's something I show up to, and wow, the pastor's so engaging and funny, and so that's great, and the music is fantastic, and wow, what a beautiful place we're in, and hopefully next week I can get back. In other words, that's a part of the body saying, I'm not going to work every week. I'm not going to be part of the body every week. I'll be part of the body when it's convenient for me. Can you imagine if you had parts that decided to work when it was convenient for them? Mm-hmm. Some of you may. All right? In other words, that's part of the problem. Yeah, sometimes parts are just gonna kind of work when they want to and don't when they don't. When Paul uses this imagery here, again, I think it's just really profound, this way of saying this is this is what the church is like. The church is a body. So there's unity and there's diversity. We all have our roles, we all have our parts, we're all necessary. And in order for this to be healthy, this is what we this is what we have to be able to do. We have to we have to be able to work as the body of Christ. And and this again, I think perhaps could be as important an image as any. And describing what is the nature of of a healthy church. Some of these features, again, will flesh out as we go as we go through it. But again, the language of the church as a body is critical. Let me give you the last one, then we'll conclude with this one. The church is a bride. The church is a bride. Turn back to Ephesians chapter five. Turn back to the book of Ephesians. Go to chapter five. Though you don't have as many verses that describe this image as say you do about the body or the church as a building, um, this, this though I think is, is an important image. One, because it's such a striking one. Like we all kind of have a concept of a bride. Now, as you're turning to Ephesians and then we're getting ready to read, uh, let me make sure to press something here. This language is often abused. What I, what I mean is it's not taught properly properly. I've been in services, I've, I've heard messages on, the, on the, this language we're going to read in Ephesians 5, churches a Bride of Christ, where the, where the one teaching, in essence, encouraged every individual to view themselves as a Bride of Christ. Now, that's kind of creepy for me. Alright, now I may, now, now, you you hear it a lot in women's ministry especially, you hear this kind of language, for ladies to view themselves, you know, as the bride of Christ, but man, if some guy up here is talking about me being the bride of Christ, alright, that's not communicating to me at all. all Alright, so this is a, in fact, it's an odd way to talk about it. The Bible never talks about us as individual brides. Of Christ, It talks about the church as the bride of Christ. And this is much more applicable. In other words, it it gives us this image of a relationship with the bride to her groom as the relationship between the church and Christ. And there's a particular image that's being driven home here. And you see it here in this passage. Verse 22. It's going to sound odd at first because you're going to recognize these verses and you're going to think, Pastor's pulling a fast one on us. He's going to start... Talking about wives submitting and husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church. Because embedded in this is this image. And you'll see why this matters here in just a minute. But we're going to read the whole thing to get the context. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now notice how that imagery comes back in of what we were just talking about. Christ is the head, uh, head of the church, Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies Who loves his wife, loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. To me, this has always been such a fascinating passage. One, because you have the whole language of submission. Uh, the relationship of husband and wife is like uh, the church to, to Christ. And that, that can be such a hot topic and uh, be hotly debated and can be so problematic in our culture that we lose the fact that really what Paul has done here is given us the picture of Christ in his church. That's what he's saying is the mystery in other words, when, when he gives this whole teaching here on husbands and wives, he is saying, this, by the way, is a smaller earthly reflection of what is the greater relationship that exists between Christ and his church. That just as Christ gave himself for the church, so a husband should give himself for his wife. But what he's really saying here is, when you understand the church is not just the, the, the building of Christ, the body of Christ, we are also the bride of Christ. And what does that imagery say? That imagery says that we have a Savior who loves us and who is loyal to us. It's really an intimate picture, is it not? The nature of Christ as the groom for the church. And it really speaks to this language of what I would say is love and loyalty. I think the imagery of the church as the bride of Christ encapsulates love and loyalty. Christ's love and loyalty for us. And then what should be reciprocated is our love and loyalty to Him. Again, it's it's another profound image that that, that helps us understand how this relationship works, that helps us understand what this thing called the church is in the first place. So again, when we're talking about church, we're not talking about style. We're not talking about music. We're not talking about programs. We're not talking about committees. We're not talking about pastors, deacons. All these things, by the way, are important. And I will reference them throughout the rest of our time talking about this question. But fundamentally, what is the church? But as I've defined it, it is a group of people who have been saved by Christ. As a result, we are seeking to form ourselves around New Testament principles of what God expects of His people. And that means uniquely understanding our relationship with Christ. He is the head. We are the body. He is the foundation, the cornerstone, and the contractor. He is the groom, and therefore the one who is worthy of absolute love and loyalty. These images should dominate what we think about. Wouldn't it be interesting, by the way, I've never had anybody do this. Anybody ever, searching for a church. And, and I've never thought this way either. Wouldn't it be interesting if somebody came through these doors as visitors, and what they were looking for, what they were looking for in a church. Was not all of the trappings of church. But instead we're looking at a church to see. Is it functioning as the building? Is it functioning as a body? And is it functioning as a bride of Christ? If that was what they used to determine. Whether or not they became a part of the church. And if that were their criteria. How would we rank? I mean, Again this is, this is New Testament. You can't, you can't deny it. This is what the New Testament says the church should be. So this, does this define us? We ask not just what is a healthy church, but what is a church? Are, are we in that? Are we in the? Are we at least somewhere in the ballpark here, a church that it's a proper building, body, and bride of Christ? All right. So next week we'll we'll now move into the actual question: What is a healthy church? And we'll begin looking at the marks of a church. We'll begin thinking more carefully about some of the items you mentioned a few weeks ago when we kicked this off, looking at what I what I think must absolutely be true of a church. And if these things are not part of a church, then I don't think it is a full, complete church. This this is how important I think. Uh, these, these concepts will be. So we'll look forward to continuing this study together next Sunday night. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for gathering us. We thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you again, Father, for your, your, your goodness and your provision uh, in, in giving us uh, the opportunity to come back into this place and into this, uh, this sanctuary knowing, God, that this is an important place and a unique place and a special place because the people who go by the name of Tabernacle have decided this is the place where we will be called out and called to uh, to with one voice and heart and life uh, come before you in worship. And we thank you for bringing us back. We thank You for the provision of the facilities that we have that have allowed us to meet elsewhere, knowing that, that, that indeed, even in another location, we were still Your church. And, and again, Lord, we're grateful to be back here. Uh, now, now, God, may, may we continue to think very carefully about what it means to be the church, the church of Christ, the one who, is our, who has our, our head and, and, and our groom to be the body and the bride of Christ, to be those who are faithful and obedient to Him, God, we just ask You continue to have Your hand on us, forming and fashioning us. We want to be Your church. We want to be a healthy church. So give us wisdom and insight into Your Word. We might understand what that is. We thank You for the week that's before us. We enter into it by faith, trusting You with our lives, trusting that You've gone ahead of us. And Lord, may we live a life in such a way that You are glorified, Christ is exalted. Give us boldness then to verbally proclaim the Gospel with the lost and dying world. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.